This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Joshua Lewis here. The video you're about to watch is a production from The Remnant Radio. Remnant Radio is a theology broadcast, and we have pastors, teachers, and theologians from various churches and denominations to come on the show to discuss a wide range of theological topics. Uh, Many of our guests we agree with, and many of our guests we disagree with, but overall our goal is to understand the scriptures more thoroughly so that we can understand the God who has given us his word. So we invite you into this conversation conversation. We hope this video is edifying and uplifting to you. Uh, If you've been encouraged or uplifted by this ministry, we would ask, please help us create free content that we can bless the larger evangelical community with. Go to our website at theremnantradio.com. You can donate there and help us empower the body of Christ. Thank you so much. Be blessed. Hey everybody, this is Joshua Lewis of The Remnant Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in this week for the show. It's an exciting program. We're going to be talking about the second wave, which we're calling the charismatic renewal, which is going to be interesting. I am with Dr. Roberts Learden. Uh, We have a great episode for you talking about that second wave. Before we get into the topic today, I just want to to let you know we are a theology broadcast. We stream every Monday night at 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. I've got Dr. Michael Brown coming on in a couple weeks. I've got Dr. Uh, 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 Michael Heiser coming on back to back in December. Got some really exciting episodes coming up in January. We're going to have evangelism evangelists coming on the show to talk about evangelism and how to save souls, what that process looks like. I got Doc, uh, Robbie Dawkins coming on the show. I've got uh, my buddy uh, uh, Brian Blunt coming on the show. I've got a lot of really exciting guests coming down the pipe, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but before we get into the topic, Dr. Robert Slearden, tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry for those who aren't familiar with you. Well, I began preaching when I was 12 and a half years old, and I am 53 years old now. I've been to 127 countries, written 84 books, and sold about 17, 18 million of them in English, and uh, built, I guess, about 40 churches in some facet or way, and I've uh, went overseas and lived, and now I'm, uh, I was in London uh, reading, leading a Bible school for Kensington Temple, and the Lord told me one day, go back to America. She's become a mission field and treat her like one. Mm. So I moved back from my favorite city of the world called London, England, uh, to Orlando and built. Sorry, opened a church here two years ago in Orlando, and I opened another one in Orange County, California. So I've got two that I'm responsible for, besides others that I'm over, but two I'm responsible for. So um, I kind of went through a thing in my private life to kind of get more and more personal. That uh, my first forty years, I, I did what most people would do probably in a lifetime. And so I woke up in my late 40s and realized my to-do list of what I want to do. Most of it I had done. There'd only be like two things I had not done. And then I decided, well, how do I want to live the rest of my life? Off what I did in the first 40 or let's go do it again. So I decided to join your generation and to join the next group and say, well, instead of me living off of what I did and being a life coach or one of these mentor kind of people, I'd rather get out there in the fields and do it again. So that's what I'm doing. 
I'm writing more books, building churches, and I'm fighting for revival in America and uh, having a good time doing it. It's not always easy, but it's better than being bored and being a has-been while you've still got 40 years to go. So <laughs> that's me in a nutshell, okay? Well, hey, so. uh, we're thankful that you're coming on today and uh, and uh, joining this uh, theology broadcast. It's still growing and, and baking and shaking. So for those of you who are out there, you might notice something. I am not uh, joined by a co-host today. I don't have any Michael Miller. I don't have Michael Roundtree. I don't have uh, my buddies with me here uh, filming. So if you have questions, I will be monitoring on my phone here on the YouTube. Uh, so so if you have questions, ask them briefly. Get them as short as possible. Uh, dump them in there, and I will try to get to them. Uh, but as I'm going to be hosting the interview, I want to make sure that I can I can focus on uh, Dr. Learden here. So uh, Dr. Learden, tell us, what would how would you define what we say uh, the charismatic renewal? What would that be to you? For me, the charismatic renewal is a time period in the middle of the last 100 years that lasted about 15, maybe 20 years of when the Holy Spirit went into what we may call the mainline or the historical churches. And so uh, you're first from uh, Brother Parham's revival meeting in Topeka all the way to probably like the late 50s after the Voice of Healing revival, uh, the classical Pentecostal kind of people. Then you've got the moment when the Holy Spirit went into the uh, Lutherans, mm-hmm. the Catholics, mm-hmm. uh, the Episcopals, uh, the United Brethren, the Disciples of Christ, uh, the Mennonites, and he began to fill them with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with tongues and miracles and deliverance, and the uh, New Testament manifestations of the Holy Spirit's presence began to happen, and it exploded. And so um, I would say the dominant leader of that, not the only one, but the dominant leader would be a woman named Catherine Kuhlman. Uh, another man that would be a dominant personality of that era would be Dima Shakirna, the full gospel businessman. Uh, sometimes he's not talked about in the light that he should be, but he was the one that w- went after the businessman, the actual everyday guy who got up and went to work and made a living and went home to the wife and the kids. And he wanted them to get saved and spirit filled. And he tried to hold his meetings in the fellowship hall of churches. Mm. And the pastors wouldn't rent him the fellowship hall. So he said, well, if you won't do it, he went to the uh, the restaurants that had uh, private rooms and the hotel ballrooms. And he filled up uh, America and parts of Europe with these full gospel businessmen. They'd go in and have a meal, bring your friend, and then have a businessman, not always a preacher, but a businessman, share the testimony of how they were wealthy or what their business was, how they got saved and they begin to get saved and they can get spirit filled and it exploded. And it was a time when God was emphasizing the infill of the Holy spirit, his mercy to heal. And uh, it was a very uh, tremendous. Effort. So to me, it, the charismatic movement is a time period in the last hundred and some years of the full gospel, uh, spirit filled experience. Mm. Uh, some people in an academic world would divide it differently. I think, like you said, everybody has it a little bit different. Uh, I see, I mean, just go through it fast. I see the, the birth with Parham and Azusa Street and the 1910s and early 20s, the birth of the ministerial networks, which became the denomination that took care of these folks who were no longer welcomed in the historical churches, were not being ordained. They thought they were mentally ill, demon-possessed. They were crazy. So there was no place for them to be. So the denominations were born, Assemblies of God, Church of God, Foursquare, all of those networks became denominations. That was a great time period. Back in those days, those groups held the torch of revival for the world. And then you get into the 50s or the late 40s, because by 19, mid-40s, your early great ones had died. Mrs. McPherson died. 
Blake was dead. Wigglesworth was dead. Uh, Price, all those early guys had died. They'd fulfilled their role. And there was a little gap of time where there was no great leader about five to eight years. And the full gospel people were like, well, what's going to happen? That's when William Branham showed up in 1947, 48. Or Roberts was healed and came out with the great healing. And the two young lions began to roar across America. And that was called the Voice of Healing Revival. There was over 150 different tent healing ministries in that era. And uh, so it thrived. Televangelism began with Oral Roberts in the early days of that time period. And it came to an end toward the late 50s. And the uh, charismatic movement began when God moved all of that and went into the historical churches. And they loved it. Mm -hmm. And the full gospel people, the classical, had a hard time believing that the Holy Spirit would go into a Catholic church where they did a Hail Mary Mm -hmm. and did communion. All the ways they did was different because we came out from among them. How dare we go back to them? And so the Holy Spirit made another point. He will go where men's traditions will not permit. And then we have to make a decision how to follow the cloud and to live our lives accordingly. And so that went into like the early 70s. Uh, I, I kind of do it with the personalities that around Miss Kuhlman's death was the unofficial end of the revival. Uh, and then at the, as that was happening, what we call the faith or the word of faith or the teaching revival under Kenneth Hagan, Kenneth Copeland, and that era was exploding. That came to a conclusion toward the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And then you had the prophetic apostolic restoration. Many of the prophetic became a great wave of restoration of the one of the five offices. And now it's uh, its brother, its cousin, or its uh, spouse. The apostolic is kind of moving that way. You're seeing uh, the conclusion of the thrill of that restoration. I, I call it the sizzle is moving, leaving, and the function is beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for people who've been in a revival because when revival's in, they all end. Right. And I know people say they shouldn't, but they all do. Biblically, they end. Historically, they end because they fulfill their role and they must conclude. And what conclusion means is, the excitement over it is over, but it does not disappear. It goes into the function of the everyday body and church of Christ. Mm. So it's no longer like, oh, we're prophetic. Now, everybody understands the prophetic, receives it, flows in it, doesn't have a problem. We have a church prophet now. We're having prophets come to, in our, our next meeting, is going to be a prophet. These words are now accepted without bad attitudes. Sure. When I was a young man, when we heard the word prophet, we all rolled our eyes like, yeah, right. Right. But we, we, that's changed in my life. Yeah. And so we see that happening. And so that's how I would kind of divide it up. I see it as different ways. To me, revivals come every 10 to 15 years, and they last about that long, and then they kind of fade out, and the next one comes in. In the spirit or in theology, I think when something ends, it's a declaration something greater is coming. In the natural, when we say it ends, we think, oh, it's all over. The truth remains. The thrill of that restoration is over. The thrill of that administration at that moment has ended, but the truth it brought or the restoration remains with us as we go to the next one. So that's a long answer to your nice question. No, that's very good. So uh, as kind of a, a follow-up there, um, you know, so we uh, Kevin asked a question here on YouTube. He said, hey, there seems to be the first 
expression, right? This first wave, this Pentecostal movement, uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out, people begin to speak in tongues. They try to understand this thing. They, they find that they're in these different groups. They're different than others. They're not the, the Wesleyans that they were formerly, but they're not the Baptist either. So they're trying to figure out where they fit. So they, they form these denominations to kind of identify themselves theologically. And then we have the, the second wave, this charismatic expression, Kuhlman, and these individuals who begin to come up out of that, uh, the neo-Pentecostal groups, which w- would be similar to uh, Brother Hagen, right? He would say uh, initial physical evidence is absolutely mandatory, but uh, he also says, I'm not Assemblies of God. I'm not Church of God. I'm not, I'm not affiliated with these well, denominations. Do you know why right? those guys aren't denominational? Do you understand why they were not in the denomination? Well, that's, that's actually was my kind of my follow-up question from Kevin was, okay. was why do you think that these, these first groups created denominations after, out of their experience, but these second group, we don't well, see a, uh, a denomination being formed out of the second wave? Well, what you have is ministerial networks. Okay. The same thing on a smaller scale and then multiplied in, 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 in facets where the beginning group, the, they were looked upon as demon-possessed. Right. They looked upon as mentally ill, as people that were theologically crazy. Because you have to realize, you go to a United Brethren Church or a Lutheran Church in that time, they're very liturgical, as you were talking about earlier in our private conversations. They were very structured. And uh, there was not much emotion allowed. The Pentecostal movement allowed the expression of spirit and soul mm. and flesh. So we allowed our bodies to, to get excited. We allowed our emotions to have a wow. We would, we would cry. We would hoop. We would yell excitedly. And we would also have the expression of, of prayer and tongues and English, sometimes very passionately. And you take that kind of stuff from your very calm, rigid group they think you're nuts. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the assemblies of God and all of these groups came about because they had no place else to go. Right. And so you come over now to our present day, we have the same thing happening again in a way with what I call these apostolic networks. Right. And so to me, it's kind of similar because what happens is um, every revival thinks they're the final statement. Mm-hmm. And they normally, if you read historically, they'll always say, the Lord's coming at the end of our revival. Well, somebody's going somewhere. Either he's coming down or you're going up. So somebody's going to meet somebody somewhere. So they're right in that sense. But they always think the Lord's going to come before the revival's over because there cannot be any more glorious thing than this. But there's always a greater glory coming. Uh, but they, they just can't imagine it. And so they also, they build these structures then uh, when you die passionately, you fight doctrinally. Mm-hmm. And so the issue that you have every new movement, those that die are going to fight doctrinally versus those who are passionately doing the gospel in the new uh, anointing or new administration of anointing. So you have that conflict and the guys have to come out. And if they're not, they get killed or they lose their flow or lose their, their thrust because it is not fit in the war of the doctrines. Does that make sense? I think so. I would, I would be curious uh, what your thoughts are on, on like the apostles, right? Like they're coming out with signs, wonders, and miracles, power demonstration. Uh, we would use the term anointing and a lot of the Pentecostal charismatic movements to describe the kind of authority that the apostles are walking in. Uh, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel, to, pro- to proclaim uh, liberty to those who are captive, you know, uh, you know, set at liberty to those who are captive, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It talks about healing uh, and setting free the oppressed uh, of the devil. And the apostles did those things are casting out demons, healing the sick, shadows are healing folk, uh, and and yet they were very passionate about doctrine. Do, do you do you find that there is a difference in the fact that that man when these when these yeah, ministries you are, can be passionate about doctrine, 
but sometimes your doctrine becomes the stick by which you beat people with. Absolutely. And so when you look at some of the people, you can see it all through history. When the, 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 the passionate touch of God hits somebody again and they start preaching, those who don't like it usually use doctrine by which to cause uh, problems or division or accusation. Hmm. Instead of like Jonathan Edwards taking doctrine to support the Great Awakening, most of them use it to tear down the Whitfield of the day. Hmm. And so that's why Hagen had to leave the assemblies. That's why some of these guys came out of the Church of God. They, they came not because they were not doctrinally Okay, but the doc was used to stop the flow or the emphasis uh, of what God needed to say at that moment. That makes yeah, sense. no, and that, that, I, I'm okay with that. I, what that doesn't to me sound like uh, people fighting theologically. That just seems to be a group of Pharisees who, and I'm using the term broadly in the sense that here come the the disciples, here comes Jesus, who coming with doctrine and the display of power, uh, and they all they can do is manipulate the scriptures and use them, like you said, as a club, right? The 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 the, the truth it sets free, it sets at liberty, it, it it empowers the body of Christ. Whereas what you're describing is a group of uh, of, of manipulators who are coming in uh, with, uh, we'll call them theology, but we'll, we'll, it's some kind of distortion of doctrine to, to beat people with. And I, I would completely agree that that at the beginning, end, middle, there are going to be groups who weaponize scripture to devalue something that is absolutely biblical. Um, yeah. I, For example, like Kenneth Hagin. I, I knew Brother Hagin. I was, uh, I, I consider myself, and I jokingly say this, a Haganite. Yeah. I lived, uh, I grew up, I lived in Tulsa. So Or Roberts was on the south side, and Rama and Brother Hagen's ministry was on the north side in Broken Arrow, where I live about four miles from there and five miles. So I live in the middle of this beautiful world. Mm-hmm. And I heard Hagen more than probably any other preacher teach the Bible besides my pastor. And so they would call him, uh, you know, extreme faith or hyper faith. There was no hyper faith of that man. And so people are just, they, they're taking uh, some things that followers said or things they don't agree with mm-hmm. to beat somebody up. And yeah. to be honest with you, if there is hyper faith, I would like to have some of it. Sure. Faith you please God. So if there's hyper faith or there's nuclear faith or whatever, I want all the kind of faith I can get. But I, I remember they, they would take and, and call him, you know, the blab it and grab it, the name it and claim it. And but yet the scripture does say con, by confession of your heart, you're saved. And and speak that these are all in the Bible. So they take those things and begin to beat people with, which is typical. And I'm gonna get it, you're gonna get it. And when they're all, when we're all dead, the critics aren't remembered. The guy right. who preaches on that remember, like I can tell you, Kenneth Hagin, but I can't remember the guy who fought him. Right, right, so. right. Well, so so um, in so in so many areas, you know, that's that is uh, yeah, the victor gets to tell the history, right? So whoever's the most popular gets to determine, uh, you know, if 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 the Nazis have won, won World War II, the story would have been very very different the way it was told. Um, so so and I think that these movements, uh, the Pentecostal Charismatic movement, for example, is grown at such great lengths and, and bounds that uh, as the proclamation well, it's supposed to be the largest Protestant group in the world. Yeah, the tongue talking group. So the the spirit filled group, the only group bigger than them, if, if the statistics are still right. And I read this years ago. The Catholics are only bigger than the tongue talking group numerically. Yeah. So we're no longer the second seat. The tongue talking people were first seat. Your Baptists are second, and all the others are coming after that. So the the stepchild or the ugly little ch- uh, orphan child is now the head person. Uh, and, and exciting to know that. So if you want to, yeah, no. Account. 
I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a, a, a scripture verse that just kind of popped into my head. So, so uh, this has been an accusation. You know, again, there, there are people theologically who disagree with a lot of this stuff, and that, that's fine, right? Uh, we, we want to be charitable and just answering their questions with honesty. Uh, there are individuals who, who look at the Pentecostal charismatic movement and say, the charismatics in particular, there's no doctrinal organization there, and there seems to be all of this kind of syncretism. Like, we're going we're gonna to embrace the Catholics, we're going to embrace this group, we're going to embrace that group. And we're just all going to kind of form into this like uh, uh, ectoplasmic uh, uh, blurb of Pentecostalism. And, and there's this verse here in uh, in First Tim, not First Timothy, Titus chapter one. He talks about uh, uh, false teachers. He talks about uh, there uh, many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. That they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families and teaching shameful uh, things that are shameful. Game. The beginning of it, he talks about uh, the apostles' doctrine, things that are contrary to the to- apostles' doctrine. What what I found. Um, and, and I just want to know your experience and your thoughts on this. When I look at a lot of charismatic movements, it seems to be that we can talk against people who have a theological structure. But if you speak in tongues, like don't speak against that guy, like don't speak against that girl, don't speak against that movement because they speak in tongues like us. It, is there um, a familiar, a familiar, a, a family bond that that ex, that exceeds the experience. Is there a, is there realms of doctrine at, in the charismatic movement that we would say, you know, this is something that we're going to fight for? Would you say that throughout history, throughout your experience, when you're looking at these uh, the Kuhlmans, they say, hey, there's a doctrinal group over here that we're not going to we're not going to participate with to kind of whether to be silence those critics who are saying that you're you want no, to unify with want anybody. Us. I think your perspective may be wrong, or at least or my they don't want us. When you, when I go to a minister's meeting, okay. Uh, in, in the cities where I'm at, and it's uh, all the different groups. They're scared of the Pentecostal or the spirit-filled people. They don't always give them the platform, and they do have rules because they don't want this to be said. They don't want prophecy. Don't. So we walk into a room where we're already in a political cultural prison, and we're told to have unity. We don't do this. Well, why can't we do this and you all come on the other side? Sure. So I'm at a place where we should no longer be quiet about what we have. We are scripturally sound with it. Yeah. We have historical precedent for it. And most people walking with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of tongues and the gifts are not all crazy. There's a few right. percentage of them that are, sure. and all groups have them. And so we've all got that weird uncle in our family. Field people quit taking the second seat and quit apologizing for what we know to be true by yeah. scripture and by experience and politely and directly and boldly talk about it and not be ashamed of it. And if we do not get received in a uh, equal level, then don't go back and be a part of this group. Sure. Why do we want to sit here and be a part of a group that puts us on the corner? No, and uh, I, I totally get that. Right. My my question yeah. is more of as charismatics when when we uh, charismatics. I'm using that term very broadly. Right. Uh, non non denominational Pentecostals. Right. Neo charismatic yeah. neo Pentecostals. Uh, they we're having our 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 movements. What do, how do we address individuals in our movements? What theological criteria do we say, oh, no, no, now they're no longer of us? They speak in tongues, sure, but, but how do we as a people police our own people, right? Since we're not denominations, right? You don't have the Assemblies of God who says, hey, these are, these are areas that we're going to have as criteria. Can we police ourselves and what criteria would we use to police that? Well, I think that all full gospel denominations and full gospel have a certain doctrinal statement. There you go. And I think we all have it. I have it in my, my life, my ministry. And it's pretty much 
the assemblies of Foursquare, they're almost identical. Mm -hmm. And in the fundamentals of the faith, our belief is the same like with the Baptist and the Lutheran with who Jesus is, the virgin birth, the Bible. There you go. Where we make a, a break is we still believe that everything that happened in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts still happens today, and none of it's been done away with. Right. So we that's where we separate. That's where there begins to be a divide. So the uh, evangelical group, I call them, begin to get upset because they don't interpret the scriptures this way. It's over with. So among the full gospel people, we believe that all these things are the same, but we believe in Acts 2, the gifts, and there is a belief system on that. So when you embrace the Holy Spirit, the infilling, just not the witness of it, I believe that we all think, well, then you're a part of the Spirit-filled family, Mm -hmm. and then these set of beliefs are a part of your acceptance and articulation and you stand with it. So there is a bond that way. If I go among a, a what I would call a, a pure Baptist, a, a pure Baptist are good people, they'll get you saved. They're good Christian people. But when it comes to healing or the gifts or speaking in tongues or visions, they have no idea. Right. And normally they will be against it. At least that's the way it was in the past. Maybe part of the new revival is we all get it together and we all have it, the same, which I would love for that to be. Sure. But in my experience growing up, they don't want it and they preach against it. They have a, So there is a bond in that family. So if that's what you're talking about. That's why it's there. Yeah. Because, so, uh, so for those who are watching, who, just to summarize, we're saying that uh, even the, the charismatic group, we're very inclusive. We want everyone to experience the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, to call them family, to call them brothers, we would define family and brothers the same way that every Christian group under the sun does, which is what you just defined, uh, the statement of faith, what would be the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Constantinople yes. Creed. Yeah. So so we look at those, the Athanasius Creed, we look at those things and we say, uh, these creeds are the Christian creeds. And because we're Protestant, also justification by faith. Uh, we look at those and say, those are brothers who hold to those truths. Anyone who's outside of that, we say, no, they're not brothers. Now, as as a, a group, a distinguishing marker is just that we also believe we're also faithful to the portions of Scripture that say earnestly desire prophecy, right? Uh, to, yeah. to pursue to speaking in tongues, right? Not forbidding these kinds of actions. We, yeah. We're pursuing these things. We're passionate about and these there things. there is order in our churches over That's right. these things. It's not a lawless, crazy mayhem. Yeah. Now, I will say there are some churches you walk in is like, can somebody please tell me who the pastor is? Who's the director here? I, I get that. Yeah. But I'm willing to be persecuted uh, and for the sake of having the authenticity of the gifts of the Spirit and be called those kind of things. Because most of our churches, dove, they do have a structure to them. But it's not all a written structure. There's a spiritual sensitivity structure that's also in them that you have to have uh, awareness of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. So there is a, a spirit structure that it's not always a physiological or a order of service structure, which I think also confuses some people who are used to very strong liturgy yeah. and what we do and all that versus we do have that, but we have flexibility sure. that uh, the others may not have. And that would be uh, a little bit of a, a difference or a conflict. Yeah. And I'm, I'm perfectly fine with those kinds of expressions. That doesn't make any, yeah, no difference to me to talk about the historical application. Cause I just, those who are looking at the charismatic movement, trying to define charismatic, they go, well, that group was just kind of open to everything. And as you're, you're describing the charismatic renewal ended, right? Like it, it had a beginning and then had an end. And, and, and the people who have the remnants of that theology still exist. Absolutely. Yeah. But the movement in itself, it, great people. Exactly. Yeah. So, so what you're saying historically then now there was always a 
a distinguishing marker of what is a brother outside of tongues. And that was a doctrinal statement uh, that all Christians everywhere have always believed. So, so talking about some of those those figureheads, talking about the uh, the Catherine Kuhlman, you, you had a, a personal relationship with her, is that right? Well, I was a little boy, met her, and was in three of her services. She was the first person to talk to my family about my calling as a child. Mm. So I was a little boy uh, when I met her, and uh, I can remember uh, the services. I remember seeing uh, the second miracle I ever saw in my life was was in her services. And I saw in that service not just one, but probably 100 or two. And I'm not exaggerating that. I mean, the place was packed out in the, the main auditorium, the bottom floor, there would be like maybe 15 rows of chairs and behind those chairs would be hundreds of wheelchairs. Yeah. And I was sitting in a place as a child where I saw people get about a wheelchairs. I saw them rolled in. I saw, no one touched them. There was no high drama. There was no high music. They just got up and walked out of their wheelchair. Some kind of wobbly others perfectly, but they all got up and walked and walked out pushing their wheelchair. Those are things I saw with Miss Kuhlman. Yeah. And uh, so the, you know, she is the greatest preacher I've ever seen. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of the full gospel preachers and, and even met Billy Graham, all these wonderful people. But that redheaded divorced woman had more of God on her and tangible presence than anybody I've ever seen. And to this day, when I'm in meetings with your generation, they go, I feel the anointing. I think, really? <laughs> you know, my, 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 my standard is Miss Kuhlman. And it's not fair to, to the next generation because they've not had, and I had to watch myself of being critical because when you say anointing, I picture Catherine. I was in a four-hour meeting, and my I could feel the weight of the presence, not the wind, but the weight mm-hmm. on you to where your my, my flesh quivered just enough where you could feel it for three or four hours. Yeah. So to me, a Kuhlman meeting is what you felt, not what you saw. So, you know, it's... um. Yes, I could talk about her all day long. Yeah, so just, uh, I have one of the viewers, Laura, she was saying uh, she's not super comfortable with us versus them. Laura, just so you know, I belong to a Southern Baptist church, right? Uh, And maybe to create some clarity for those who say, uh, this is what the Southern Baptists did teach, what they do teach, a a very helpful distinguishing marker is by looking at their statements of faith. You can actually, you know what these people believe and teach by those statements. There are some churches in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, that hold to like a 1689 London Baptist Confession. Uh, That confession would be completely cessationist, right? They would say, no gifts of the Spirit, those gifts have ceased. Then you have another group of Baptists that hold to a 2,000 faith and message Baptist. And basically, uh, what what, uh, myself and Dr. Learden has described as the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that's the 2,000 faith and message. There's tons of Baptists. Actually, a vast majority of the Baptists today hold the 2,000. So that's not to say that they all believe in the gifts of the Spirit. It's just to say that they're open and it's not a close-handed issue for them. So so there are many Southern Baptist churches that practice the gifts of the Spirit many that don't. Uh, and, and again, we're not saying it's an us versus them, but we are saying as we look at scripture, uh, we, we, are, we believe that the scriptures themselves contend that the gifts of the Spirit are still active in the body of Christ today. We believe that. We teach that. We think everyone should believe and teach that. Uh, so, so we're going to be moving for that. So thank you for your comment there. Um, uh, you, you kind of mentioned the, the Word of Faith movement. Would you say that the Word of Faith movement and Brother Hagen that this is part of the charismatic movement, or this is kind of like a no, subset? No, it's a part of the Spirit-filled revivals or the Pentecostal movement overall. Okay. Uh, I, some a- historicals and academics people might call it that. I would call the charismatic movement the charismatic movement. Sure. And uh, then the next revival that came after that was what has been called a uh, better name for it, I don't know. It's called the teaching revival or the word of faith revival that was led by Hagen and Copeland, Norval Hayes, Jerry Savelle, Fred Bright, all these characters. 
And uh, that was a whole distinct revival. That was a whole different move than the charismatic. Now, if you're going to use the, the title of an umbrella, which I think you're, you're referring to, it's a Pentecostal movement. Sure. Uh, so the word Pentecost is the overall name that historically lasts over all the other little names of the different little uh, outbreaks of the moves of the spirit of emphasis. And so it's a Pentecost, It's a part of the Pentecostal revival. And so I, I don't divide it that much. To me, under the umbrella of Pentecost, you've got uh, you've got the charismatic, you've got the voice of healing, you've got word of faith, you got prophetic. All those movements are underneath that title. Right. But people can rearrange it how they want to. So one of the, 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 the theological markers of the first wave, right? So we can say there's a date on the first wave and a theology of the first wave because it was so different than everything else around it. So uh, one of the distinguishing markers was initial physical evidence that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will speak in tongues. And if you haven't spoken in tongues, the Holy Spirit has not come upon you in that sort of baptism mode. No, I, I would differ with that. He, he can come on and give you a witness of the Spirit, but when you're filled with the Spirit, you will speak with tongues. And that that's different. There you go. That's how I would teach it. That's how I would encourage others to understand it. That when you're born again, you you have a work of the Spirit in that regeneration, and we call that the witness of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's with you to a degree. But when you're infilled, when you're filled up or baptized in the Holy Spirit, when that happens, then there comes several signs, and one of those initial signs is speaking with tongues. Hmm. And so to me, that is one way to recognize the infilling. It is not the only, but it is one of the most dominant. Yeah, and as as a uh, uh, one of one of my second blessing kind of group uh, feel. So I, I was raised in a Sunday school church, and one of the pastors there was very adamant that uh, it can be a sign, but it is not the sign. So there's many in that group that believe that. And as that was one of the distinguishing markers for the first wave, guys, when we look at the second wave, did did they require an initial physical evidence um, of speaking in tongues to be a baptism sign, uh, a baptism of the Spirit? I would say most of them did to some degree. Some believed it stronger than others, but I think most of the leaders from... Uh, from Parham till today, they still hold to some degree of initial evidence uh, uh, as a part of the of the sign that the Holy Spirit has filled you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be born again, have the witness of the Spirit and the degree of the work of the Spirit. Yes, amen. D.L. Moody, Charles Finney, That's right. these all people had the, that great power, that great anointing. But then there came, I even think some of those guys spoke with tongues. They just didn't have the language that we call it today. Like Charles Finney called it unutterable gushings. Uh, when he would pray, he used those terminology. Sometimes when you read history, you can't put words in their mouth, but it makes you walk away thinking, could that be what we call Mm. speaking in tongues or that kind of overwhelming prayer with those utterances that are not word-based or English-based? But I I don't want, as a historian, to respect the the actual writer and the person. I don't want to put words in their mouth and say they spoke in tongues. They didn't say that, but it makes me walk away with my respect of them thinking, they might have had something that we would call tongues happen in their life, but they didn't have our language to describe it. And they, like Finney would call it unutterable gushings. Mm-hmm. Well, to me as a Pentecost, like, like, hmm, that makes me go, hmm. But I wouldn't call it that because I don't think I have the credibility of source documents to do that. And that's I, that, that's so, a lot of integrity because there's a lot of people who would a lot of people who would yeah. they would they would have an inch and they would take a mile with it, and yeah. uh, I, I don't think that's correct. I think that's being uh, uh, not fair. Yeah, it's not right. It's not being honorable. I respect all of these men. These men and women were greatly anointed. They they could not have done what they did without some degree of the Holy Spirit's anointing. D.L. Moody couldn't have done it. Yeah, he talked about having an experience with the Holy Spirit. And then you have stories about things he would say, like Finney, 
but they never said this. And so I, I won't go there as a historian. I just, I honor them. But I will tell you, when the Holy Spirit came on the next group and they spoke with tongues, revival sped up, uh, movements moved, the, the churches began to grow faster. The whole thing you saw in Acts began to happen again. So there is something about having the influence of the Holy Spirit with its empowerment and the speaking with tongues and becoming aware of the spiritual realm in a greater way of the gifts and the hearing the Lord's voice. All that comes alive in the influence of the Holy Spirit. So uh, there is a difference. It's not a us against them, but there is a difference between a person that is filled with the Spirit and those who are just have the witness or the Spirit just upon them and not in them in a full measure. Yeah, we have. Uh, uh, makes some people mad, but no, no, I get it. I, I get it. it. Yeah, so so I would say, uh, yeah, there there is a video that we did recently with Dr. Jack Deere. Uh, it's called "Filled with the Spirit." You can look it up. Uh, there is a a very close representation, but but different. I think maybe in its presentation, ever so slightly, uh, th- that'd be worth w- uh, looking at for those of you who agree or disagree and want to look into more of the the doctrine of being filled versus the doctrine of being baptized in the Spirit. And are those things the same? Are they synonymous? Are they different? Uh, uh, but to speak to your point, there is a series that we are f- we have filmed already. Three different series. It's there on the screen. Uh, Apostolic Christianity. We did that with uh, Matthew Esquivel. It is like a nine-part series on the Apostles' Creed, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, that's what I did with Dr. Scott Harrell from Dallas Theological Seminary. There's 12 parts there. Uh, that that series, if you went to DTS to take that course, uh, you'd be spending like $1,400 on that. Uh, and then the patristics. We did early church uh, doctrines of how the patristics, the early fathers and mothers, practiced the gifts of the Spirit for the first 500 to 1,000 years into the early church and how this was a documented thing that they had written about at great length. You can sign up for any of those series. they're, they're going to be crazy cheap. I think they're going to be like 20 bucks a piece. If you email me and say, hey, I can't afford it, I'm going to give it to you for free. I think every Christian on the planet should have it. Um, I really, really believe in the teaching that we're doing on that matter because the charismatic gifts are not an invention in 1905, right? It's yeah. not this event that That's happened at Pentecost. in a great way. Yeah, people go, oh, you, know, you guys just invented this thing. It just came up on the scene. The fact of the matter is we have early church fathers for hundreds of years after the apostles, after the close of the canon, and, and the the, the charismatic gifts are present. The, the display of yeah. signs, wonders, and miracles it's are still present history. in the church. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a thread we can pull on. So uh, go check that stuff out. You can subscribe on the website, theremanentradio.com. Sign up for that that uh, that email list so when that comes out, you can get registered for that. So, uh, uh, Dr. Learden, as we're looking at the the charismatic expression, so we look at the Pentecost, we, we see the second the Holy Spirit falls on them. I mean, they're like sending people overseas to do missions. How how is global missions impacted by the the, the charismatic renewal? Well, it's, it's sped up, and to be honest, some of the greatest harvesting combine ministry machines are the full gospel people, uh, the spirit-filled people. The, the TV networks were all built mainly, the ones that succeeded, that is, were built by the Holy Spirit-empowered people groups and uh, that, are, that are large and go, and they were built by individuals, not by denominations, which is another phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see that it, it spread Rapidly, it increased with the power gifts, uh, people seeing miracles, people seeing, hearing the message, seeing the signs confirming it, they came to Christ by the thousands. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that is why it's moved that way so rapidly. Excellent. So, do, in my opinion. Yeah, so so uh, when we look at the Pentecostal, again, the, we're trying to distinguish those first and w- second waves. Is there any distinguishing marker? You know, I, it, it's really difficult for me because as I look at it, it doesn't seem like there's much of a distinguishing marker. I, I think you guys are making a mistake by trying to find one and second. It's a whole, 
it's a Pentecost, Holy Spirit restoration. Yeah. It hits 1901 or two in Topeka, Kansas, with a guy named Parham. It goes to Houston and explodes with a little black man in California, and it goes wild all over the world. The Holy Spirit is, is fire, and it moves like lightning and, 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 and grass fire. And, you get, and so we're trying to academically chop it all up. First wave, charismatic one. No, it's called the Holy Spirit hit people, got him, yeah. got in field, spoke with tongues, empowered, and they went and preached the gospel, confirmed signs and wonders, and built a great move of God. That's It's that simple. No, in it, academia, you guys are killing it. Stop. Yeah. Just go do the stuff and enjoy it. Now, I love all this, but at the end of the day, we can die here trying to pick all that. It's like studying reformational theology. Mm-hmm. You can die on one doctrinal verbiage statement and spend a whole year of study on it, and it really doesn't matter at the end of the day what really that wasn't a big deal. So some of these things we're trying to figure out is a waste of time. Uh, I respect it. I'm a historian. I get this all the time. At the end of the day, the guy on that microphone should go build his church and do great ministry and go do signs and wonders and do the stuff. The people watching me get the overall picture of it and then go do the stuff. We are responsible now. The leaders that have led the full gospel church, most of them are dead now. Or Roberts is dead. Hagen is dead. Derek Prince is dead. And the list goes on. They fulfill the role. You and I and the people watching us have to realize it's now our responsibility to take up what they have done and continue it and decide this question. What kind of Christianity are we going to have, which I think you were talking about, and the quality of it and how it spreads. And we have to be careful. We don't spend time diagnosing too long before we die in the diagnosis table. And so that is what's happening. So we are at the point where it's our responsibility and there's going to become a push and a shove between academia being quiet and go do the stuff versus the guys who go do the stuff that never talk to you guys. So somewhere we all got to get married. And at the end of the day, we all have to go to our fields and and, and do the harvest. And to me that I've been viewed by saying that as, well, you don't understand. Well, I've been to 127 countries as a church historian and a preacher. When I go overseas, I preach, do signs and wonders, do the, win souls, get people for the Holy Ghost, help build churches. And I do the history thing that we're doing tonight as a side issue, mm-hmm. as a secondary part of my call. My first call is let's build spirit-filled churches. Let's conquer the devil's power in a city. Let's go do the. That's what we're going to be responsible for. And someday they're going to write about us. Did we do it well or did we fail? Yeah, and I would. Well, we better make sure we get it right. I would. I would lovingly, uh, uh, maybe, maybe suggest that the 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 academics are trying to do that as well. So, so if I if I look at the theologians that are that are in my corner that I love to death, uh, guys like Craig Keener, guys like Wayne Grudem, guys like Matt Chandler, guys like Doctor Jack Deere. I look at guys. They are in the academic world, but they're foremost pastors of their local congregation, preaching the gospel, making disciples, uh, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. That kind of they're focusing on those kinds of activities, and as a side work, are trying to protect the authenticity of the gospel. Um, uh, the greatest way to protect it, yeah, is to go do it. And I, I think that you and I are definitely in agreement there. I think that we're in agreement there. <laughs> I'm giving you the bold, blunt, raw. That's what Oral Roberts told me. Yeah. When I sat in the chair, you said, and I talked to Oral like you're talking to me. Or Robert said, at the end of the day, quit your talking and go do the stuff that God called you to do. He said, I helped change the world by preaching and praying for the sick. That's why you want to ask me my advice. Yeah. My advice to you is go do the stuff. So maybe that's what we should No, and I, you, you and me are in agreement on that, on that for sure. Uh, I think yeah. that there is a, 
Uh, Jesus sits down with the boys and says, hey, guys, I want you to go and proclaim the liberty to the captives, to heal the sick, the, to, to, to those who are infirmed. Uh, and then they come back and they're like, hey, demons are even like coming out. And he's like, hey, you know, don't don't worry about that. You're saved. But there was this constant, this constant draw of go out and do. And then they would come back and go, what the heck was that about? Right. They'd go out and do and they'd come back and they'd say, Jesus, explain this to us. So there is definitely if there is a disconnect between academics and and practice, then those things need to be merged together. Uh, what I would what I would be careful of is that we look at the practice and be like the Corinthian church, and that we're displaying miraculous signs and gifts, but don't have the academic uh, apostolic doctrine that was passed down from Christ to the apostles to the church that's keeping us ordered and structured. So it's those two things have to be married. They can't be uh, uh, independent. It doesn't have to be an us versus them. It doesn't have to be, uh, uh, you know, if we're speaking in tongues, we got it. And if we're healing the sick, then we've got it. And everyone else isn't doing those things. Those people are doing those things, uh, but they're, they, they, it's a, it's a both end for them. So and again, that's not all academics. Like we had said, there, there's a group of pharisaical people who just want to get doctrine and beat people up with it. Uh, but, but I believe that I'm seeing a marriage of a lot of those things. Uh, and it might be an unfair characterization to, to talk about all of them this way. Uh, I think there's a lot of people, Paul included, who spent quite a bit of time in the academic world who would say, yeah, uh, but uh, I'm going to do that and this. Uh, and they would fight for both. So, so as, we, as we look at uh, the, the charismatic movement, you know, what... Uh, what do you think are some of the most encouraging stories? Because, I mean, you're, you're a historian. You're, you're, you're grabbing those nuggets of those moments, of those events that just shaped culture. Were there events, were there stories that seem to have been uh, explosive in the life of the church that maybe started a, a, a fresh wave, a, a fresh inspiration, uh, a passion for evangelism? Was, was there, think about those events, maybe uh, one healing, one miracle, one thing that really spurred something on. Well, in the full gospel circles, there's quite a few, and they were revolve around uh, in individual experiences. Uh, you got Sister McPherson, mm-hmm. uh, the great, I call her the first lady of the Pentecostal movement. She was as famous as Billy Graham was back in her day, back when women preachers were not uh, accepted or not as, as honored as they are today. They right. still have a ways to go. And she also wore makeup and cut her hair, and that was back when they called you Jezebel and Delilah for doing that. Uh, so her her ministry really put the Pentecostal church on a national international profile, uh, her healing ministry, her great church. I think her Angelus temple church was a great moment in the early twenties uh, that made a movement. So if you want me to tell stories along those lines, we, we, I, we, we can do that till tomorrow, but sure. Sister McPherson was a Canadian and uh, she uh, almost didn't become a Christian because her first dance was with the Presbyterian preacher. And back then, dancing would send you to hell. That's right. And so how could, she, how could she go to a school dance? And the first dance she ever had in her life was the Presbyterian preacher. So that was a problem for her as a little girl. But as she got a little bit older, uh, a Salvation Army preacher came to town that had gotten filled with the Holy Ghost in Robert Simple. And the Salvation Army was a great revival movement uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And that was a tremendous revival movement. And uh, Robert Simple was a, a part of it. And Amy's mother, Minnie Kinney, was a part of it. But he got spirit-filled in the early Pentecostal revival. They got married and became missionaries to Macau, an island off of, of, of China. Uh, he dies there, and she thinks that her ministry is over. She goes back to Canada, and the Lord keeps calling her to preach, and no one knew who Amy McPherson was. And uh, so she got sick and almost died. And on her deathbed, 
God kept saying, preach for me. And finally she said, I will. And God healed her like in 24 hours. Hmm. And she began her ministry. And so she began to pioneer that. And it ends up being the first woman to drive a car across America from the East Coast to the West Coast. She goes to California with two kids. And uh, she tries, uh, she has a revival meeting. And one night in a late all-night prayer meeting, back in those days when they called all-night, you prayed all night. Mm-hmm. You prayed from the time it started in English and tongues. And when you went to the bathroom, you kept praying in tongues. When you came back, you prayed all night. You didn't pray for an hour and then have some coffee and some cappuccinos and talk and then pray again. Or everybody got down, you prayed like the house was on fire. And uh, about midway through the night, the Lord said to her, I've given you the city of L.A. The city is yours. And back then they called it the note of victory. Mm-hmm. When God gave you an answer to your prayers, you get a shout or a, a joyful song. Well, there was about 500 people praying with her. And uh, when that thing hit her, God told her, I've given you the city. She began to shout to where her bobby pins, they said, flew out of her hair and her long hair, went every place. And that's the night L.A. got a spiritual governor, and her name was Amy McPherson. And uh, she built Angeles Temple that was had a tithe of the population of L.A. L.A. was about 250,000 at that time, mm. and she built a church and had 25,000 mm. members of her church. That was a tithe of the city, and she was more popular than the movie stars. She sold more war bonds than all the movie stars put together. She fed more hungry people than the, during the Depression than the, the government did during the city of Los Angeles. Mm. And so she was the great one. She was the first person to own a Christian radio station in America, the third radio station in Los Angeles. And uh, she built a Bible school that everybody came to. And uh, her students began to go build churches. And so she went up to the Western District of the Assemblies of God to want to put all of her churches that her students were built into the assemblies and they wouldn't receive her because she was a divorced woman. Mm. And so you could kill your wife and preach again and be okay with the assemblies of God, but you couldn't divorce one and uh, repent and preach again. So they wouldn't receive her students and their churches, so she had to build the four-square denomination, which became the third largest uh, of, the, of the full gospel groups. Is, and is so I would Hayford in charge of that? Is What's that? Jack, is Jack Hayford in charge of that today? He, he was the leader of it at one time. He was okay. the president of it. It was Amy. It was um, her son, uh, Rolf. Then I think there was Roy Hicks and a few other guys. And then um, Jack Hayford was it for a while. Okay. Because uh, he's a four-square guy. Great guy. And so I think that's a pivotal moment in, in full gospel history. I think Or Roberts is a pivotal moment in full gospel history. He built the first great accredited university that was built on the authority of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues and healing. And he merged uh, education and Holy Spirit. Because the early Pentecostals did not send their kids to university. They thought if you got an education, you lose your anointing. Mm-hmm. Because they sent all their kids to universities, they came back not believing what mom and dad taught, not what the church taught, and in a simple, wrong way concluded that if you got educated, you'd lose your salvation. Right. So Oral Roberts came along, and God said, build me a university. Well, Oral Roberts was the hero of the Pentecostal people in the 40s, 50s, and on through his life. And uh, because he kept integrity, his miracles were authentic, and he was not playing any games. And he built the, the great university, and he brought the Pentecostal movement from the wrong side of the tracks to the right side of the tracks. And then he went mainstream. The little TV box, he decided to go on TV and help birth what we call televangelism. Mm. 
mm-hmm. because America was eating TV dinners and they were watching Milton Berle and the 20 minute news show called the six o'clock news. And I love Lucy and America was watching television and all Roberts wanted to be on TV and talk to America. Well, they didn't want a faith healer on TV. He hired a guy named Lonnie Rex, a good friend of mine, old, and he's almost 90 now. And he was your age when he was hired by Oral. And he had no knowledge of TV, but Oral hired him and said, your job is to get me on the TV stations in America. Well, Lonnie Rex liked Rolls Royce cars. He hadn't had any money to buy one, but he liked them. And that Sunday in Tulsa, where they were living, there was a Rolls Royce car show. And it was closing on Sunday afternoon. So he went to church and then dropped his phone off and went out to the show. And he and an old man were the last ones to leave the show that night. And they were looking at the new Rolls Royce car. The old guy asked the new guy, the young guy, you know, you like this? Oh, I I like it. One day I want to own one. They talked about it. And they walked out and the old man asked him, what do you do for a living? He goes, I work for Evangelist Oral Roberts. And the guy got mad and closed down. And he said, you know who I am? He goes, no, I don't know who you are. He goes, guy that, the old guy that likes Rolls Royce cars, like I do. And he goes, I'm the head of what we call the FCC today. He was the head of the, the TV thing of that time period. Mm. And God had arranged in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for the young man and the guy that had the power. So within 18 months, Oral was on like 300 TV stations in America. Mm. So now America was hearing a young man tell that God is a good God. The devil's a bad devil. And he was preaching and then pray for the sick and America began to see the miracles and they begin to come by the tens of thousands and oral one in one year, over a hundred thousand men alone mm. to the gospel. See, that's what the power of the Holy spirit does to you where some of our other brothers, they will organize versus pray and have the power to push through. And so that that those two things there's a difference. We would agree with that theologically. The Bible says that the gift of the, the Spirit was given so that you be power to be a witness in Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. So again, one of the reasons we would fight for uh, uh, this this expression of the gifts of the Spirit, we want this thing to happen. Why? Because it's a sign. It's a power to be a witness, and that's something that we would encourage all of our our non Pentecostal, our non Charismatic, our non uh, Continuationist. Uh, these terms are. Uh, continue and continue uh, to say, yeah, we want to push for these things because they'll be, they're powerful for a witness, you, whether it be, uh, uh, you know, uh, Philip, you know, who goes into Samaria, whether it be uh, Philip who's, who's caught up alongside the eunuch, you know, these kinds of stories, they're supernatural and the gospel would not have, could not have spread the way it had, uh, had it not been accompanied by those signs. And that's why they were yeah. given. So, And that's why the full gospel movement is probably the fastest growing rapid thing that has happened uh, in the last few hundred years. That's right. Because when you get the Holy Spirit releasing and filling many people at one time and they have a direct relationship and they're cooperating and they're learning to walk with the Holy Spirit as a personal friend, all of a sudden more things can happen faster uh, all over the world at the same time and be empowered to do it. And, and that's why I think that in a hundred and some years, it is a phenomenon, not of man's ability, but the Holy Spirit working through a willing heart. And uh, I think that's one of the great keys of the spirit-filled life is recognizing that it's his power through us. But when he starts flowing through us, work with it, get behind it, be bold about it. Don't apologize for it. And if somebody don't like it, that's their problem. Good day. Keep going. That's the attitude because we can't sit and explain ourselves to death. 
let's go produce fruit, goes fruit, answers the questions. Like O. Roberts would say to me, he goes, they criticize me for praying being a faith healer. He goes, at the end of the day, a miracle answers all the questions. When somebody gets healed, I don't have to say nothing. It solves all the questions. So I think that's um, still true today in very simple ways. Excellent. Hey, uh, it is uh, right at that time. Let's Before we wrap everything up, tell everybody about yourself, your ministry, any books that you are uh, working on right now, have released those kinds of things. We'd love to talk about that. Yeah, we, uh, we write three kinds of books. We write teaching books. We write revival history called God's Generals. And then we bring old books out of print back into print because some things should always stay in print, whether the sales are big or not, because of what it carries theologically and spiritually. And uh, we're building a church in Orlando called Embassy Church Orlando and one in Southern California. And uh, so I'm writing uh, the generals books I'm famous for. Uh, the, uh, six are out. There'll be 12 in the series over my life. So I'm working on an, another one called The Great Child Evangelist of the early 1900s. Because I think the child revival movements will be a part of our next move of God. Hmm. So if we can uh, highlight uh, that which happened with the early evangelists. There are men and women, little girls and little boys, 12, 14 years old, that were filling Madison Square Garden at 14 and building churches. And so uh, I think that's coming back as part of our end time sign revival again. So I want to highlight what happened, learn from the mistakes so we can do it better this time. Uh, so I'm writing about that. And then I'm writing other books on what I call theology, teaching books on uh, prosperity, on healing, on the gifts. Uh, I'm actually working on a book called It Means to Be a Spirit-Filled Life or Spirit-Filled Person. because I think it needs to be redefined for a new generation. So those are things I'm working on, plus traveling. I'll leave Wednesday for Thailand, mm-hmm. uh, or Taiwan, I should say. And so I travel all the time. I, I love living my life. It's good. I, I want to live two lives before I get to go to heaven. Hey, you know, we, we, are, we are thankful for uh, that. We're thankful that there are people uh, like yourself who go around the world preaching the gospel. Uh, and if we can support that, help that, that's what we want to do, uh, get the gospel out there. So those of you who are watching, uh, again, thank you for coming on. I want to make sure to spend the time. I love it. Taking time it. out of your day. It's actually later there than it is here because uh, you're, yeah, you're in Florida. Yeah, it's about 10.30 or so. Yeah, it's it. late. Let's do it I again. I appreciate it. I'd yeah. like to do it again. Blessings. I like, I like the talk. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. So for those of you who are watching, uh, The Remnant Radio every eight th- every Monday night, 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, we have various theologians and pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations come on the show to discuss various theological topics. Uh, our goal is to impact uh, the, the larger evangelical community, the Protestant community, uh, with the gospel, with truth, to impact so we can glorify God and benefit for his people. Uh, so if you're, if you're watching today, uh, we thank you. Let us know where you're watching from. Put it in the comment section. Say, hey, I'm watching from uh, we got people in uh, uh, Finland we got people over in Ukraine we got people all over the world watching these videos thank you so much for tuning in I think we got I was 84,000 views, uh, like I want to say last month. And then this month, I think we're in the 40 to 60,000 view. Uh, man, God is really blessing the channel. We're thankful for your support. Uh, we have a, a link in the description. If you want to support the channel, we're thankful for anything that you guys do. And there's also, uh, uh links to Dr. Learden's books and some other resources on Pentecostal history. If you'd like to go and research more about this on your own. So we want to be a help and a blessing to you come alongside you for that. Uh, so anything that we can do to help you guys, let us know, leave something in the comments. If you'd like to see a video in the future. So that's it from us. Uh, again, Dr. Learden, thank you for coming on and we'll see thank you guys you next time. Me. Enjoyed it. Blessing.
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.